Hi, Jay. This is Michael Serenzi from papercall.com. I just listened to your latest podcast from PubCon that you brought us from Vegas, and it was great. Your interviews were awesome and extremely informative, and I look forward to the next episode you guys put out. Thanks so much for all your work, and appreciate all the information. Thank you. Welcome to Episode 17, a special holiday edition of the 10 Golden Rules of Internet Marketing podcast. We have a bunch of interesting content and a beautiful holiday song, so let's get rolling. Welcome to the 10 Golden Rules of Internet Marketing Podcast, featuring the latest strategies and techniques to drive traffic to your website and convert that traffic into sales. Now here's the CEO of 10goldenrules.com, Jay Berkowitz. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever this podcast finds you. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 17. Off the top of the show, we heard from Michael Sorensi from papercall.com. And if you heard our last episode, an interview with Matt Cutts at Live at Webmaster World, Matt's the um, very highly regarded Google engineer, Matt and I picked up a t-shirt at the Google party, and in the middle of the interview, we offered it to the first caller to mention the interviews. Michael was the first of a number of people who inquired about the t-shirt. So it's a small thing, but Michael, congratulations. You have the exclusive shirt the Google shirt from the Google party at Webmaster World, and we'll get the shirt out to you this week. We still have a bunch of great recordings from Webmaster World, um, some interviews from the trade show floor featuring the most innovative companies I found on the trade show floor featuring something new and different. But for today, we've got a bunch of great call-ins, a conversation with domain name expert Monty Khan, and an interview with Sarah Milder Caldicott, the co-author of a new book about her great-uncle Thomas Edison. And Sarah's going to explain how Edison innovated, what Sarah thinks he'd be doing online if he was alive today. Now, last week, I promised a really big announcement on the show. And the big news is that last week, I was able to sit down and interview Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist.com. We talk about founding one of the most well-known websites on the Internet and how Craigslist came about and some tips for aspiring web entrepreneurs. It'll be about two weeks before we play the interview with Craig, and we've got to get that edited and ready to go. But I think everyone will look forward to hearing from the founder of Craigslist.com. And also not to be missed, next week we'll have the interview ready to go. We sat down poolside in Miami with Avinash Kaushik. Avinash and I both spoke at an event called SIPA, the Specialized Information Publishers Association, and Avinash is just a brilliant um, internet marketer, talks, his specialty is analytics, and he is the analytics evangelist for Google. And we'll feature that interview and conversations from a geek dinner we had with Avinash next week. If this is your first 10 Golden Rules podcast, I want to give you everyone a big welcome for joining. And for those of you who stuck with us through the year, it's a real pleasure to be able to come to you and share what we're learning out there from the community. Each week, my, myself and the team at 10 Golden Rules and our call-ins and interview experts are going to share the latest in internet marketing and what we're learning and how to use the internet for business, personal productivity, and fun. I record the show live in one take. There's no fancy editing, no fancy studios. And we just bring you everything we, we, we find from the call-ins and the conferences and the live events we're attending. If you kind of like what you hear, you can subscribe to the show for free. 
and it's the best way I find to listen to a podcast. If you go to iTunes or on our website and click on the podcast link and the RSS syndication, you can sign up and each week when we publish a new show, you'll get a notification in your iTunes or on your reader or through another method. Now, if you're thinking about podcasting yourself, one of the best ways to get started is by starting small and calling into a show. You'll get a feel for how your voice sounds and get some feedback for yourself on how to record you know, future calls. So please feel free to give us a call at our digital recording line. You can call at any time. It's a 24-hour service, and they basically record your call through a company called K7.net, and they digitize your call, your message, just like a phone message, and I get it as an email, as an MP3, and I can just drop it onto the show. I have a special request for call-ins this month. Please give us a call with your predictions for what you think the big stories are going to be in 2008. What's going to be big in marketing? What's going to happen on the internet? And then I'm going to gather everybody's input and we'll play a prediction show at the start of the new year. Now here's another call we received this week. It's from Lisa Louise Cook from Genealogy Gems. And uh, let's play the call now. Hi, Jay. This is Lisa Louise Cook of the Genealogy Gems podcast which is a weekly show all about how to research your family tree quickly and easily, which you can find at genealogygems.tv. I just wanted to tell you that I'm pretty new to your podcast, but it's kept me motivated lately to get out and walk more so I can be sure to have time to listen. And I really appreciate that you're providing real and useful information, not just advertising fluff. I think that's really key to building a loyal audience, and it's something that I try to stay very focused on with Genealogy Gems. In fact, I'm going to have to start carrying a notepad and pencil just to jot down all the great tips that you give, so I won't forget them. Well, keep up the great work. Thanks. Well, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for joining the conversation, and thank you so much for your nice words. I'm like you. I, uh, I often listen to podcasts while I'm walking my dog, Tyler. And a lot of times there's great ideas that come up and, and I forget, oh, geez, I wish I, I wish I had a way to, to note that or mark that down. Anyways, next up, John Gluck from Take 5 Solutions. Hey, Jay, how you doing? Jonathan Gluck from Take 5 Solutions. Love the podcast, doing a great job. Probably one of the best marketing podcasts on the net. And the music is good, too. A lot of interesting music. I wanted to let your uh, listeners know that there's a great audio tool for the Mac called Wiretap Studio. been using it for a few weeks. A lot of fun, very easy to use. Great for uh, the Mac people. The uh, software can be used for making your own podcast and uh, submitting different audio reviews on different sites. You can record up to two tracks, and you can uh, put a voiceover or uh, some music in the background as a second track. You can record in different formats, MP3, AIF, MPEG-4, great feature I love is the uh, time recording option. Set a given time and date, certain length, and uh, worked pretty good on streaming uh, radio programs. Um, also has the ability to um, capture from any source, so you can uh, record an interview from Skype, record from any other source uh, that you like, uh, iChat, things like that. It has a great editing tool, and also uh, edits it cleanly by automatically creating a smooth fade-in, so it's not a uh, jagged cut or a straight cut. Um, overall, it's a, a pretty simple tool for the Mac. Breeze to operate just like uh, how uh, the Mac users like it. 
And uh, you can check it out. Uh, it's called uh, Wiretap Studio by Ambrosia. All right, Jay, take it easy. Have a uh, good evening or good morning or good afternoon, as you say. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. That's John Glock from Take 5 Solutions. Great tip for the Mac crowd. I'd like feedback from all the Mac operators out there. We're um, PC over here at the 10 Golden Rules podcast. Next up, let me answer an email from Sylvia Huang from from San Diego, California. And she wrote, Hi, Jay. This is Sylvia from National Pen. Allison Terrell said you answered questions on your podcast. This question came up during an office discussion, and I was hoping you could provide some insight. I'm familiar with the search engines reading hyphens in the URLs as spaces. And I've read that through search engines are starting to read underscores as spaces. It's still better to use hyphens. Now my question is actually about image names. Does the same thing apply here? Is it better to use a hyphen if we need a space rather than an underscore? For example, contour-pen.jpg as opposed to contour-pen.jpg. Well, Sylvia, I referred this question to our search manager, Catherine, because, of course, she is our guru in all things search. And she referred to a post on Matt Cutt's blog, and Matt definitely recommends hyphens. So I'll read from Matt's blog. I often get asked whether I'd recommend dashes or underscores for words in URLs. For URLs in Google, I would recommend using dashes. With underscores, Google's programmer roots are showing. So if you have a URL like word1 underscore word2, Google will only return that page if the user searches for word1 underscore word2, which almost never happens. If you have a URL like word1-word2, that page can be returned for searches word1 or word2 or even word1 word2. That's why I would always choose dashes instead of underscores. To answer a common question, Google doesn't algorithmically penalize for dashes in the URL. Of course, I can only speak for Google, not other search engines. And bear in mind that if your domain looks like www.buy-cheap-viagra-online-while-consolidating-your-debt-so-you-can-play-texas-hold'em-while-watching-porn.com, that may still attract the attention of the search engines for other reasons. I think you get Matt's humor there. Basically, um, Matt and Catherine both confirmed that hyphens are better protocol for all files, including images. Um, Sylvia, thank you so much for joining the conversation. Next up, let me go to a question I received from Maureen Landa McGavin on Facebook. She asked, if a domain name that I want for business is taken, which is the next best option? .net, .biz, or should I alter the name of the company to use the .com? Well, thanks so much for the question, Maureen. First of all, the, 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 I get asked this type of question a lot, and a lot of times people think the domain is taken just because it's not for sale at the registrar. That doesn't mean you can't get the name. You just have to do a little bit of research. So the first thing to do is type the web address of the name you're looking for into the browser, you know, www yourname.com. Now, if someone isn't actively using the domain as a website, the name may be for sale. One of the clues, if you see a website with a bunch of blue underlined links and Google ads, that's often a sign that a domainer 
who is a professional domain owner has the domain and it may actually be for sale. So the next step is to check the who is information at a registrar such as Network Solutions or GoDaddy or Moniker and find out who owns the domain. The who is information, sometimes it's hidden, but for the most part you can find the who is information and find out who owns the domain. And at that point, email or call the domain owner. They'll have webmaster contact information in the who is. Now, a lot of times someone had a business idea and they just didn't get it off the, off the ground. Uh, for example, I own over 100 domains and many of them are for future things. Sometimes we buy domains for clients and they decide not to go ahead with a project. So a lot of times you can acquire a domain at cost or just for a small amount to recover the registration ex expenses. For example, if I held a do domain for two or three years for a project, I might just say, hey, you know, give me, you know, nine, ten bucks a year. Give me thirty, forty dollars so I recover my expenses and you can have the domain. Our friends at Flatiron Media, who were interviewed on a show a couple episodes ago, they were given the domain by the owner, flatironmedia.com, because the original owner had, had been holding onto the domain and they just didn't use it, need it anymore. And so flatironmedia.com became their domain. Now, step two, if you absolutely can't get the domain you want, and there are two or more words, you could try adding a hyphen in the name. As Matt Cutts said, a hyphen, not an underscore. So try to hyphenate the name or create a hyphenated name by using an adjective before the word or, or just add an adjective, you know, go to mybusiness.com or getmorebusiness.com. And then the third step, if you absolutely can't get your first or second choice, then you might want to go for a .biz or .net. Those are my favorites. And then the country code. So .us if in, you're in the US, .co.uk in the UK, .ca in Canada, etc. Now since we're on the topic of domains, why don't we go to a recording of our conversation with one of the world's leading domain name experts. At the recent Webmaster World or PubCon conference, I chatted with Monty Khan. Monty is the CEO of Moniker, a domain name registrar that concentrates on the domainer. Domainers are people who own hundreds if not thousands or tens of thousands of domains. Monty's also the host of the excellent Domain Masters podcast on webmasterradio.fm. Now we've worked with Moniker at 10 Golden Rules and one of the projects we helped them initiate was the domain auction. We interviewed Monty right after the domain auction held at PubCon. So here's Monty with the results of the auction and some great tips on domain name management. You getting interviewed? I'm here with Monty Khan of Moniker.com. Now, Monty's going to report on the domain auction. How'd it go? What, what were the big sellers? Well, the domain auction, it was the first time PubCon domain auction here at Webmaster World. And we sold $326,000 in the live auction. And then the silent auction goes on until the 13th of December. So we're hoping to double those sales. But uh, the top seller today was SoccerTV.com for $80,000. And then the second largest sale was Grandpa.com for $55,000. And do you know what people are going to use those for? The buyer of SoccerTV.com is a domain investor. I don't know what he's going to do with it, but soccer is extremely popular, as you know. And um, Soccer videos are always number one on YouTube. Yeah, well, there on the, you go. On the first that's page, that's yeah. probably why. And SoccerTV, actually, .com came with four other domain names, which was the .biz, the .info, the .us, and the .org, and the .net. So he got a package for that price. Grandpa.com, I don't know what they're going to do with it, but... The company that bought that just bought Computer.com in our 
last live domain auction for $2.1 million, and they develop domain names into portals, and they also monetize park traffic, domain traffic, and a company called park.com, P-A-R-K-E-D.com. Park. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we know those guys. Right. Right. And um, what are some of the tips that you would give people about buying domains and, and finding great domains? Well, the best domain names are usually domain names that have some kind of commercial value, have uh, one word or two word combinations that have some kind of commercial meaning. And so the best thing to do is to look at domain names that have the, you know, if you're going to buy a two word domain name, something that has commercial meaning like buy or discount or cheap, you know, verbs and adjectives and nouns together are the best names. And then you look at Google PageRank and link popularity and overture bid rates and all those things to find out what the best keyword combinations are and also some of the best industry trends. So, for instance, YouTube made the word you and a domain name together pretty valuable and also the misspelling or the other variation of that, which is the letter U and domain names together. MySpace with the word my in front of it with domain names actually made those popular. So new popular combinations of words that have now been very huge, phenomenal companies now have created new domain name registration vehicles to become popular. And there's a bunch of variations of Google and double O's and stuff like that. But also the day of uh, redefining definitions of words like Amazon, which now means bookstore on the web instead of jungle, are very hard to do unless you have millions of dollars behind you. So it's more important than ever to get the domain name that describes your business and what you're offering, what your ser- you know what your services are, and you know those are the things that are really key. A lot of times people will search a domain and the domain's not available. There's not even a park site with links on it. They might be able to buy that domain. So people aren't even aware of that. What should they do when they're searching for a name? Well, if they go to moniker.com, there's over 3 million domain names available in the aftermarket. So uh, we never let like to have a domain name not be available. So if you go and type in a domain name that you want into the registration box to go register a domain name and it's not available then the domain names are most likely available or combinations of the same keywords are most available in the aftermarket, which are thousands and thousands of people that have put their domains up for sale that meet the linguistic um, you know, match of the keywords that you've typed in. So if you're looking for something like myspaces.com, you might get different types of domain names that are around myspaces or different variations of those words that kind of mean the same, and you have second and third alternatives, and you can buy them right on the spot for maybe instead of 10 or $15 of registration, it could be several hundred or even a couple thousand dollars. So they are available in the aftermarket. What are some of the names that are available on the silent auction? Well, every domain name that didn't sell in the live auction goes into the silent auction to the 13th of December, and they're available for sale. So Affiliate.com. Affiliate.com is one of them. Iran.com, Iraq.com, Kuwait.com. Then we have WallStreet.com, which is available in the aftermarket in the silent auction. You, you cut your teeth on WallStreet.com, didn't you? I, I sold uh, WallStreet.com back in 1999 for $1.3 million, and now it's available for a minimum reserve of $2.6 million. So they bought it for $2.3 million, and now they have it back up for sale. And it's a moneymaker. It gets lots of traffic, and it's a very good domain name. The final question I ask people is a personal thing about your Internet use. Is there anything that you've found that's really helping your efficiency, personal productivity, any fun sites you're going to, or any uh, good blogs you're reading? Well, there's a lot of great domain tools out there when you can evaluate domain names now. There's some really cool sites out there that give predictors of traffic, like a a site called compete.com, gives you kind of a predictor of how many people actually type in that domain name every day. So they 
index the top two million domain names on the web and then are able to predict traffic. Of course, there's Alexa and Google and other tools and Overture. But there's another site called SpyFu, that's S-P-Y-F-U, that actually tells you the click-through, cost per click, ranking for each domain name, whether there's paid click searches on that, and a kind of a a predictor each day of what you'd spend if you bought certain keywords. And so that's a good uh, name also, or good uh, domain name website to go to to get indicators of value. And so there's tons of sites like that. Great. Well, thanks for taking the time, and congratulations on the auction. Thank you. And uh, make sure you go work with Jay uh, Berkowitz. (laughs) Well, thanks, Monty. Thanks so much for taking the time uh, out of the Google party at PubCon. Um, The the auction was great. I actually had my bidding paddle up a few times at the auction, and uh, some of those prices got really, really crazy right away. Um, they, they had some great names, some real, you know, legitimate single word dot com names, as Mo- Monty mentioned. And you definitely, if you're looking to for business ideas, the domain name auction is a great place to start because y- if you find a domain, a great domain like affiliate.com, you could start a whole business around that domain name. So it's a great place to look. Also, if you're really good at search engine optimization, if you find a great name like that, you can really wrap a business around a domain name. Our next section is the Live from the Blog segment. And the team at 10 Golden Rules records the most interesting thing that they've been blogging about on our blog. Our blog's also available on a link off our website. So first up is our intern, Misha, with a report on Facebook. And this is really interesting because it comes from a college student's perspective. So let's go with Misha now. Hi, this is Misha, 10 Golden Rules intern. As a college student, social networking has been a part of my life for about four years now. You can imagine my excitement when I was invited to join Facebook as a high school senior. Until then, Facebook had been the college-only social networking site, but they had just started allowing high school students to join on an invitation-only basis. I was completely addicted to Facebook after that, and this obsession continued until this past summer. About six months ago, Facebook began to allow anyone with an email address to join, and despite all of the petition groups to turn Facebook back to college only, it continues to allow anyone with an email address to join. While this attempt to turn Facebook into a MySpace-style social networking site annoyed me, I was still satisfied with their services, and Facebook was the only way that I was connected to many of my friends. My excitement ended when I was introduced to the new applications that you can add to your page. Some of them were fun. You could add I like to share the bands and music you like, but some of them were annoying, and you had to read about how Joey bit another victim with his vampire. On top of this, they had deleted the courses application, possibly the only useful original application in terms of college classes. When you added a class to your schedule, you added it to Facebook under courses, and you could see who was in your class. This was useful because you could find that really cool person who sat next to you in calculus class, and if you ever missed a class, you could message them and find out what you missed. So now I find myself checking Facebook maybe once a week, and when I do check it, I have to scroll through a link a string of zombie and vampire applications. I think that Facebook realized they were the next big thing in social networking and increased their user numbers and page amounts to boost their profits in exchange for many of the earlier user satisfaction. Okay, next up is Michael, and Michael has a list of 10 reasons to blog. So since it's a 10 list, let's go with the 10 list music and then we'll get into Michael. One, two, three, when you look at me, I go out. I know you're crazy for me and four, five, six, I know you get your kids. 
everyone, this is Michael, and I'd like to review with you the top 10 reasons for you and your company to have a blog. Number one, search engine optimization. Each blog written can potentially target specific terms that people are searching for. Two, it keeps websites fresh with content. Search engines rank websites that contain new content higher than stale ones. Blogging is an easy way for businesses to add that content and keep search engines coming back for more. Number three is that blogs can be become link bait. A good blog article in an industry specific insight or a thoughtful critique. People will link to the blog and more links the better the results within the search engines and the more traffic you will get to your site. Number four is they help you gain visibility as an expert in your industry. When a CEO or executives in the company blog about specific topics, they're demonstrating insight, leadership, and thoughts on where your industry will be heading. Five, show off your employees. Blogs are an opportunity to show off your company's profile, culture, and detail what you are experts in. Six, is a blog engages a reader's interaction. Companies are able to offer readers the option to comment on your company and the articles that are written. People are able to ask questions or start conversations about topics important to them. This gives the business an opportunity to answer those questions and keep customers satisfied. Number seven is it's free and easy. Google's Blogger makes having a blog very easy, and best of all, it's free. All you need is a Gmail account, and you can log in and begin to blog. Number eight is for breaking news. When your company has news they want to put out, there is no faster place than your blog. All your readers will be kept up to the minute on what your business is doing. Nine is the RSS feeds. RSS feeds are what automatically keeps your blog subscriptions coming out. Through the RSS feeds, businesses are able to expand their web presence and attract more people. This assists with link building and getting your URL around the web on other sites. And number 10, run promotions. Blogs are another way for companies to offer promotions to customers. Sometimes this can act as an exclusive for people on the web, promoting your website and products even more. People will go into other blogs and post what you are offering, luring traffic back to your site. Have a great holiday. Hi, this is Catherine, and today we're going to talk about videos. Are videos part of your search engine marketing campaign? Search engine marketing just isn't about optimizing text, getting links to your site, and running a pay-per-click campaign. Universal search is in full swing, and video search is a powerful medium in which to reach out to potential customers. According to the last Comscore Video Matrix report, Americans view more than 9 billion videos online, showing that the average online user watches slightly more than three hours of online video during the month. Just like standard search, Google's network, specifically YouTube.com, is proving to be the one to court when it comes to video search. Google sites own 28.3% of the video share, and YouTube makes up 27.6% of that share. So if you're not already implementing videos into your search engine marketing campaign, it's time to get started. And make sure to put those videos on YouTube.com, because not only is it the most popular video content site on the internet, Google and Yahoo Video Search both crawl YouTube.com looking for new videos every day. This is Jeff. It's that time of year when every website, book, magazine, TV show, etc. puts out their best whatever of 2007. The fine folks over at Nerve.com put out their top 20 viral videos of 20, 2007, and for the most part, the list is pretty accurate based on what I think. Uh, in the top 15 to 20, there are some obvious standouts, such as the Obama girl coming in at number 18, 
Uh, I think the number 12 video, a two-year-old singing My Humps is pretty good, uh, as well as Miss Carolina's infamous flubbed answer uh, at number 11. The dramatic chipmunk came in at number eight, nine, which, in my opinion, should be number two. It's the most brilliant five seconds in the history of the Internet. Uh, in the top five are the Thriller Prison Dance video, uh, a couple not-safe-for-work videos that we shouldn't mention here on a, a public web, on a public podcast, Leave Britain Alone, and the brilliant Will Ferrell and Pearl sketch, The Landlord. Uh, the Landlord was watched over 50 million times, and a vast majority of those were not on YouTube, but instead FunnyOrDie.com. How many of these had you seen? Which videos are missing from the list? Hi, this is Margie. Google announced today that it has finalized the YouTube layer for Google Earth. Now you can zoom into a region of the world and then with a click watch videos tied to that location. Of course this requires appropriate geotagging by the person uploading the video, meaning they've got to include location information when uploading, but what a great feature. When you're tooling around Google Earth researching your next destination, you can also stop and enjoy some videos related to that area. Google rightly warns, if you turn on this layer in Google Earth, you might not get any work done today. I suspect that's true. I certainly got sucked into it. Okay, Susan also has a 10 list, so she deserves a musical intro as well. Me and four, five, six, I know you get your kicks when I sing for you, baby. Sing it for you. Listen closely to what you say. Hi, this is Susan. If you already use the microblogging social network, Twitter, and enjoy tweeting daily, you might like another blogging community called Utters, spelled U-T-T-E-R-Z. Known as a mobile blogging community, Utters allows you to do a combination of different types of posts to place on your website. This includes creating posts by voice, videos, pictures, and text. Every time you utter, it will automatically update to your profile page, and you can also set it to immediately update to your blogger, Facebook, LiveJournal, MySpace, Twitter, and more. There are also channels where you can participate with other users about a certain topic and voice your opinion. Right now, Utters is available to users in the U.S. and Canada, but going worldwide in the coming months. Utters is just as fun as Twitter, in my opinion, and is starting to gain popularity. Also, it's free, so why not give it a try and be heard? Hi, this is Rosie, and my topic is Jackass 2.5, Kicking and Bucking Hollywood Marketing Tradition. Hollywood is experimenting with their marketing distribution strategies in a new attempt to utilize the Internet's full potential. The producers of a new film plan to shift away from the conventional movie business practices and completely bypass the traditional theatrical release of their film Jackass 2.5 in favor of an online launch and distribution. Jackass 2.5 will be the first studio-backed full-length film to be offered online for free streaming. On December 19th it was made available for two weeks on Blockbuster's website. On January 1st, 2008, Blockbuster will have exclusive online video-on-demand rental rights via MovieLink and the DVD will be sold by major retailers and sell-through platforms, including Amazon's Unbox and iTunes. The international release next year will use the same strategies but with different distribution partners. For their remodeled marketing strategy, instead of traditional promotions 
through 30-second television spots and print ads, the movie will utilize short-term, intense viral marketing and video messaging featuring the film star Johnny Knoxwood. With the movie's marketing of young internet users, this experiment has a chance to help Hollywood transition into a mainstream digital media player. Okay, thanks to the team. A great job as usual. Next up is our weekly section called the blog or podcast of the week. And we scroll the internet and listen to podcasts just trying to find something great to share with you. Something that's caught our attention. Something a little different. So here is the winner for the blog or podcast of the week. A big congratulations to Manager Tools. It's a weekly podcast focused on helping you become a more effective manager and leader. Each week, Mark Horseman and Michael Ozine talk about new tools and easy techniques you can use to help achieve your management and career objectives. Now, this is a total information podcast. It's all business, no fluff, no music, lots of great coaching on how to manage your team and improve your personal productivity. Here's a sample of a great show where Mark and Michael talked about priorities and how to manage your calendar. Well, welcome to Manager Tools. Today's topic, the basics of calendar management, part one of two. Hi everyone, this is Mike, and welcome back to Manager Tools. During today's cast, we described the first of our recommendations about calendar management. Now, we spent a lot of time talking to executive clients about how they spend their time, I was just thinking the other day about how many times we've caught ourselves saying time management and then immediately, uh, I mean, priority management. Yeah, I, I, definitely a billion times for me. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's almost, I don't know, it would be a little bit irritating. I, I find myself saying it an awful lot. On the other hand, that's one reason why we love getting things done so much, GTD. David Allen talks about managing the work, about wrestling with priorities, even though whenever anybody asks me about time management, I say David Allen and getting things done, right? I think we did that last week. We love David Allen, both of us. So we're going to today going to talk about the week, and I say week, of an effective executive. Yep, that's right. Let's respect our listeners' time and get right to it. So how are we going to go through this? Okay, five recommendations. Very simple, very straightforward. A uh, couple will surprise people, and they are number one, family comes first. Everybody misses this one. Everybody misses it. Yeah, everybody. I'm um, sure everybody's shocked that you said that. But okay. Yeah. S number two, schedule time for email. Number three, nail down your strategic objectives in your calendar. Number four, block out one-on-ones. You got to get those done. And number five, network building lunch. So that's just a short example from the show, Manager Tools. You can find Manager Tools on iTunes. Just search Manager Tools. And their website is manager-tools.com. Big congratulations to Mark and Michael. Thank you guys for teaching me a lot. And congratulations on being our podcast of the week.
Well, without further ado, let's get to our fascinating interview with Sarah Miller Caldicott. Sarah and I both, uh, I guess we first met, we were both on the agenda at a meeting of the CEO Executive Forum about two years ago. And her presentation was all about Thomas Edison's technique for inventing. And Sarah and I stayed in touch over the years. We spent, uh, she spent most of the last couple years writing a book called Innovate Like Edison, The Success System of America's Greatest Inventor, which she co-authored with Michael J. Gelb. Sarah and I spoke before she presented to a recent American Marketing Association meeting. So here's my interview with Sarah Miller Caldicott. So I'm thrilled to be here today with my friend Sarah Miller Caldicott. She lived in South Florida and we got to know each other and then moved back to Chicago. But she's down here promoting her new book, Innovate Like Edison. Sarah, welcome to the 10 Golden Rules podcast. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about your background and the background of your company and, and this incredible new book. Well, I have a 20-year background as a marketing executive. I started my career in Chicago, where I worked for about 12 years for PepsiCo and Unilever. I did a lot of product development work and launched products both in the U.S. and overseas. And then in 1998, I moved down here to Florida, decided to leave the cold and the snow behind and come down to the tropics. So I started my company, Starwave Associates, here. And Starwave was really intended to translate all the skills that I learned as a mass marketer down to the level of the small business owner and the entrepreneur, trying to make some of those tools more guerrilla, more on the ground, more focused, but bring a strategic um, view, an integrated view to the small business person so their marketing efforts could be more successful. Started writing the book in 2004, did a bunch of research on that, and um, wrote the book uh, in the space of about a year, and it just came out in October. So, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. And I saw a couple presentations as you were developing the book right. and, and talking about competencies of Thomas Edison, how to apply it to business. But t tell us all a little bit about how the book came about and why you took this journey. Well, in 2003, I read the headlines that China had surpassed the U.S., as the largest recipient of foreign investment. And I knew that that was going to mean changes for the U.S. You know, we had just gone through September 11th and 2001 and the bursting of the tech bubble in 2000. So the country was, was still kind of recovering from lots of, of new, I'll call it shocks. So my feeling was that to be successful in the global economy, we were really going to have to go back to our innovation heritage. So as a great-grandniece of Thomas Edison, I thought, well, maybe he has something to offer us now as we make this transition to compete in the global economy more successfully against China. And that was really the impetus to start uh, researching the book. Why don't we just break down the five competencies of, of innovation, and then we'll go from there a little bit. Sure. I was really shocked to find out that no one had ever researched Thomas Edison's innovation process. Now, here's a man that generated over $100 billion in market value in the first 40 years of his career. And he had That's a 62-year career, so <laughs> that he wasn't even done at $100 billion. Uh, and he had over 1,000 patents. So I thought, wow, how, how did this man become so prolific? What was it that he was doing? What were the patterns and sequences that were so important to him? So this was really the focus of my research. And out of that, 
came what I call the five competencies of innovation, as you mentioned. And um, I was, again, very surprised that no one had written about this before. So the competencies... Now, now I have ten golden rules, but I'm not, <laughs> not going <laughs> to pretend to, to uh, you know, be in, in the stature of Mr. Edison. So, so talk about the five competencies. Well, a competency, as you know, is really a cluster of processes, skills, and beliefs. So when these clusters are mastered, you create competitive advantage. So by mastering the five competencies, an individual or a team or an entire enterprise creates competitive advantage. That's really the goal. So the first competency of innovation is what I call a solution-centered mindset. The second is kaleidoscopic thinking. The third is full-spectrum engagement. The fourth is mastermind collaboration. And then the fifth is super value creation. We're definitely going to spend some time on the mastermind. I want to hear more about (laughs) that. But explain each of the ones uh, individually a little bit for us, if you would. Absolutely. The first one, solution-centered mindset, is really about how do you reframe your mental outlook to think like an innovator? How do you newly look at the world in such a way that instead of seeing obstacles and problems constantly, you're seeking solutions? Edison was an extraordinary motivator to his people and part of his ability to do this was his optimism. He believed that virtually any problem could be solved. So through his experimentation, which is also part of his solution orientation, through his vast reading, and through his ability to set goals that were aligned to his passions, he was able to drive forward more successfully than any of his competitors. So I talk in the book about how he did this, but those are really the core elements of a solution orientation. Now, for those of us who didn't study enough history, um, share a couple of his major innovations. We we maybe should have done that off the top. Oh, that's okay. Well, in 1876, Edison invented research and development, (laughs) and he did that by establishing Menlo Park. Menlo Park was the world's first research and development laboratory. So some historians think actually that was his most significant innovation. Another important innovation was the phonograph. He invented recorded sound. He invented, of course, the incandescent. So we wouldn't be podcasting (laughs) if it wasn't for Thomas Edison. We'd be sitting here in the dark. There you go. Well, we, we wouldn't have the evolution of technology that we have today, certainly. And the incandescent electric light came shortly after the phonograph, 1879. Huge, huge uh, disruptive innovation. Then in the 1890s, he invented the movies. And beyond that, in the early 1900s, the first alkaline storage battery. So those are some of the real standout innovations that he generated. And there are many others as well, and some of those are in the book. Great. So step one, create a solution-centered mindset and, you know, Get yourself in the frame of mind to innovate and also with your team. What's uh, number two? Number two is kaleidoscopic thinking. And here I noticed a whole series of techniques that Edison was using to generate options and generate ideas. In the 21st century, options are worth a lot of money. And often what we do is we narrow our options too soon. So what Edison shows us is how we can actually expand the option frame beyond what we ever imagined. And he has a a whole series of whole brain thinking techniques that he uses, one of which is what I call analogical thinking. Analogical thinking 
means taking two things that seem unlike and trying to find out how they are alike. And in the book I talk about, for example, how Edison used his very deep knowledge of telegraphy to invent the world's first electrical circuit. There was no such thing as an electric circuit before Edison invented it. The incandescent electric light then led to the entire system of electrical power distribution, so circuits were critical for that. So in the book I show how he was thinking, well, what is the flow of information through a telegraph system? And how could that be like the way I want electricity to flow through this circuit I'm trying to design? So you see his mind turning, 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 like a kaleidoscope, different options and different ways of approaching this circuit. So that's sort of the essence of kaleidoscopic. So coming at things from a very different angle. Exactly. You hear a lot about that in innovation. Definitely. Great. And what's the third principle? The third is full-spectrum engagement. And here we see the dynamic tension that we all have to navigate in the innovation process. We have to navigate the highs just as effectively as we have to navigate the lows. Now Edison lived to be 84 years old. He died in 1931 and was born in 1847. And I was astonished that he lived that long. For a man who was so deeply engaged in, in work, I thought, wow, you know, how did he not have a nervous breakdown <laughs> in all this time? So what he mastered was the ability to embrace the opposite ends of a spectrum. For example, he was able to be serious and playful. He was able to handle complexity and simplicity. He was able to work in solitude and work with the team. So this competency tells us how to just flow, to flow with the highs and flow with the lows and not get too dramatic. Edison was not into drama. He liked to just move forward steadily. So there's a lot we can learn about focus and concentration in this particular competency. Great. And competency number four is? Number four is mastermind collaboration, which sounds like something that has piqued your interest particularly. Um, well, N Napoleon <laughs> Hill's book, Think and Grow yes, Rich, right. is the first place I heard of the mastermind. That's correct. Um, essentially surrounding yourself with experts. The, the, the whole book and the whole way of thinking was a tremendous motivation and really, you know, paradigm changer for me in my career. Oh, wonderful. So talk about how Edison applies mastermind thinking. Well, in fact, Napoleon Hill admired Edison a great deal and interviewed Edison on at least three occasions for his book, Think and Grow Rich, in which he talks about the mastermind concept. Napoleon Hill loved Edison's optimism, and he recognized his ability to draw together extraordinary teams of people. That's what mastermind collaboration is about. How do you unlock the vast potential of a team. How do you motivate them? How do you coordinate their efforts? This is what Edison was able to do by bringing together people on one team who came from different disciplines. He always put together multidisciplinary teams. As well, he had what I call a first circle and a second circle of collaborators. In the first circle were people who were very skilled innovators, people whom he had been working with for quite some time, and he paired those with people in what I call the second circle who had a medium level of innovation experience. And along with that, then, new people to the organization. So through this process, not only did he create a flat organization, but a learning organization, and that propelled the successes of Edison's teams. So in addition to this, 
another magic secret Edison used was small teams, teams of three to seven people. So multidisciplinary teams, three to seven people with this first and second circle concept in play. Great, thank you. And without further ado, the fifth competency. The fifth competency, super value creation. One of the things I noticed about Edison, and, and this is sort of based on my own experience as a marketer, was that he generally didn't just invent individual products or individual services. He liked to think of platforms, entire platforms of products or platforms of services. For example, he didn't just invent the phonograph. He invented the phonograph and the first record. <laughs> so he then later did yeah, record. That kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think this is where we can look at our own process and say, hey, how much further could I push something? Is, am, I, am I stopping short of really adding super value to what I'm doing? Same with the movies. Edison invented the film projector, which was the first kinetoscope, and also short segments of films themselves, and he directed movies, and he, he had a, a movie studio. Wow. He did contracts <laughs> with actors <laughs> and hired people to actually run that whole um, undertaking for him. So this is another example of entire platforms of concepts. Amazing. <laughs> what, what, what a mind-blowing range of, of successes. Absolutely true. So w w this podcast primarily looks at the Internet um, and, and innovation. Um, what do you think Thomas Edison, were he alive today, would be doing on the Internet? Would he be blogging? Would he have a MySpace page? I think that Thomas Edison would, would go to the max on the Internet. He would have a MySpace page. He would be doing YouTube segments. He would, in fact, I think, actually be organizing collaborative networks of inventors and innovators globally. Edison was an international traveler in his day. He was watching trends in Europe, you know, even in the 1870s. So think of what he could do today with the Internet, watching trends, you know, looking at people's blogs, blogging his own positions, his own opinions about things. I think he would really be in multiple areas of Internet activity today. I don't. We, I didn't prep you on this question, so I hope I don't. <laughs> I don't stump you. Do you think there's anyone even close to Thomas Edison today? Well, I'll tell you. One of the challenges that we have today is that the world of the inventor has gone within corporations. So, for example, my grandfather invented Herculite glass, which we would call shatterproof glass today, at Pittsburgh Plate Glass in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And Chrysler was the first automotive company to put um, w windshields in their cars with shatterproof glass. So I well know that Robert Anderson Miller was not touted within the United States as anywhere near the inventive genius of a Thomas Edison. So the inventor who operates outside of a corporate arena is very rare today. So I think part of what we actually need to do is to say, how do we motivate people within corporations to be more inventive, offer them greater incentives, understand how we can keep intellectual property secure, but motivate the younger generation to want to be inventors and innovators, go into corporate life, or 
work in an incubator environment, if you will, that's funded by a venture capital group or, or other bodies. This is, this is why I think we don't really have a lot of standout inventors today. There are several in my book that are, are noted, one in particular, Dr. Robert Lerner, who works at MIT, and he has over 500 patents today. Awesome. So he's probably yeah. the person that I have gotten to know the best who is at least halfway to Thomas's record. <laughs> That's great. How about the Google, Google guys and the Google company approach? Do you think that is in any ways like Edison's approach? You know, I actually do, and this is something I've thought about a great deal. If you look at the five competencies of innovation and some of the charts in the book that summarize the competencies and the, the elements or building blocks that constitute them, you could go through and you could check off and say, you know, is Google doing this? Yes. Is Google doing this? Yes. And you could literally go, I think, through the entire list and, and nod your head that they are actively engaged in these various competencies. So I think they've done a terrific job. I think their challenge will be, you know, to sustain that and to, you know, as they grow larger, you know, the, the inertia grows too. So it'll be interesting to see if they're able to keep it up. Yeah, they certainly surround themselves with great people and they um, have the funds to acquire a lot of great new technologies and, and bring it into the Google way. Absolutely true. And, and that's exciting because, you know, they're, they're thinking at the leading edge of technology, which is rare today. I think they're willing to do that experimentation, which is, again, part of that solution-centered mindset. They're willing to push the envelope, knowing that not everything they do is going to work, but not everything that Edison did worked either. But it was learning. It was all learning. I want to go back to... Um, competency number four, sure. mastermind collaboration, because, um, you know, a lot of, uh, the, at least what, what I recall from Napoleon Hill's mastermind principle, is to create a mastermind group for yourself. Yes. And either surround yourself with people the way Edison did, or create a networking group. And a lot of people do this online as well. Absolutely. Um, meet every week, uh, at, normally, uh, at, at every two weeks at, at a minimum. And... Um, you know, really coach each other to sure. success and hold each other accountable, accountable. to success. No question. And a lot of online opportunities uh, give you this opportunity, too. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. Well, you'd asked before, you know, what would Thomas Edison be doing on the Internet? And one thing he would be doing is, is looking at social networks and social networking. This is a huge tool today. And I know in the book we talk about it. We, we talk about, in fact, a specific link that people can actually go and map their own social network. It's on page 285 of the book. So, you know, the social network is part of your mastermind. Yeah, the link is, um, I'll, I'll read it quickly, but sure. we'll include a link in the show notes. HTTPS, so it's a secure site, yes. colon, two forward slashes, web app with two Ps, dot com with two Ms, dot Virginia, dot edu, forward slash network roundtable. But we'll, we'll include a link. <laughs> you can look at your own social network. So, for example, how many people do I know who are older? How many people do I know who are my age? How many people do I know in my own industry as well as outside of my industry? So you start to see whether you have a diverse network or whether your network is kind of all channeled and focused in a specific area. And today I think that can be more limiting. So you want to try to open your network and, you know, through that mastermind process, um, you know, see what else you can draw to yourself and, and add to your own thinking and innovation prospects. There's a couple online applications I've seen, like one I think is called Twitter Blocks, and one is called, it's either on LinkedIn or Facebook, called Clouds, 
and you can see clouds of clusters oh, right, and right. how your Facebook group connects to right, others. You know, I have heard about that. I haven't seen it, but I have heard about that. That's well, a very interesting I'll approach. get the right links in the show notes <laughs> okay. as well. Um, well, Sarah's speaking to the American Marketing Association in about 15 minutes, so um, let me wrap up with just a couple more questions. Um, first, t- tell us a little bit about uh, what you're using online and, and what you're innovating with and uh, what Web 2.0 or, or Internet sites you're, you're testing? Well, what I'm doing primarily at this point is scanning and researching. I haven't yet posted a lot of my own work, like on Facebook. I, I've got something for YouTube, but I haven't released it yet. That will be happening soon. But I do like to look at those sites and see what's what, going on. What have on. you been doing, like writing a book? <laughs> <laughs> I've been writing a book. And actually get get using that Facebook site updated, <laughs> will you? <laughs> Using the web to do a lot of research for the book, that's probably one of the biggest things I've been doing. And as well, uh, some of the people I interviewed for the book are very engaged in Internet activity. For example, Mike Wing, who's the VP of Strategic Communications for IBM, was talking about a lot of the things IBM is doing in the area of the Internet and just computing in general. Uh, For example, they're putting together a whole new discipline, if you will, called services science. And if you think back to, say, the 1950s, 1960s, that's when computer science was first developed, and IBM initiated that. So what I'm really intrigued to learn, and and what we talked about in this interview a bit, was how do you invent an industry? And so the internet is, you know, offers us that capability, and it was just a fascinating discussion. So great. And um, the last question is, where can people find you, and where should they buy the book? Well, they can find more information out about me at my website, which is www.sarahcaldicott.com, and I'll just spell it really quickly. It's Sarah with an H and Caldicott with two Ts, S-A-R-A-H-C-A-L-D-I-C-O-T-T.com. I've got my speaking schedule on there and just some bio information and uh, things that people might find interesting about my own background. But they can buy Innovate Like Edison in virtually any bookstore, Borders, Barnes & Noble, of course on Amazon, any independent booksellers, so it's uh, nationally distributed. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and, and great to see you again. Well, thanks, Jay. Great to see you too. Well, a big thank you to Sarah Miller-Caldicott and everybody who participated in this show. Thanks to John and Michael and Lisa for calling in. Thanks to Monty for taking the time for an interview. And um, as you can imagine, this podcast is a labor of love, and we'd love to know um, that you're listening. So please give us a call with your comments to 206-888-6606. Don't forget, we'd love to hear your predictions for marketing in the Internet for 2008. What do you think is going to be the big story next year? Does Facebook lose popularity due to their advertising policy? What's going to happen with video? Is 2008 the year that we start watching TV online through Juiced or some other delivery method? Will Google stock pass $1,000? Will the Patriots go undefeated and win the Super Bowl? Give us your Oraclean predictions. Let us know at 206-888-6606. Now, as always, we end the show with a song selection from the Podsafe Music Network. Here, next up's a really pretty song from Mindy Smith. 
called Santa Will Find You. Mindy hails from Tennessee and lists her influences as The Cure of the Sundays, Sarah Vaughan, and Patty Griffin. The song's available on a new album called My Holiday that features six original songs. Find out more at myspace.com slash mindysmith. I hope all of your holiday dreams come true. Stay safe and warm and happy holidays from me and the team at 10 Golden Rules. If you're far away on this holiday And you're dreaming of being at home If you're worried at all that you may be forgotten You should know that you you're there and you're shining bright like a beacon bright as a northern star so don't
Thank you for listening to the 10 Golden Rules of Internet Marketing podcast. Please send comments and questions to podcast at 10goldenrules.com. That's podcast at 10goldenrules.com. Or use our call-in line 206-888-6606.